Before I pray and get us into this passage this morning, I want to um, remind us that a couple members of our church have lost a precious loved one to them. Gary and Sally Mitchell are in out of town today um, burying Sally's father. Sally's father passed away this week, and uh, so that means that Wes and Kara and Matt are with them as well. So I want to start by praying for their family um, before we get into Romans 8 this morning. So let's let's pray for them. Father, we do want to bring before you the Mitchell family in these days, especially Sally, whose heart must be so burdened as a result of the loss of her father, her earthly father that you gave her for so, so many years. Thank you for a long life full of years uh, with which Sally got to know and spend time with her father. We do pray for your great comfort as the God of all comfort to be with them, that they might extend your comfort with, with which you have comforted them to others, and they might know the comfort of God and be able, as a result of that, to when other people lose parents and loved ones, they might be able to comfort them with the comfort that they themselves have received from you. We pray for Matt and Wes, who have lost a grandfather. We pray for Gary, who has lost a father-in-law, and even Kara and Riker. We pray for them and ask that you would draw near to them today especially, but in the weeks and days to come, that you will uphold them by your spirit and grant them Peace, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, and may it guard their hearts and their minds in Christ Jesus, in whose name we ask these things. Amen. Amen. All right, so we are in week number two of a brief series we're doing on growing in godliness, growing to become more like Christ, which is the path that God sets us on when he saves us. It's a path where we are growing progressively, slowly, but albeit really, into the presence of Jesus, the likeness of Jesus, the true image of God. And so last week, Pastor Jonathan introduced us to that concept and warned us about the consequences of unchecked sin in our lives, that if we allow ourselves to not deal with sin, we will reap consequences. And this text this morning is going to underscore that reality as well. Growing in godliness, though, has really two aspects to it. It's not just killing sin and seeking to put sin to death, which the old writers called mortification. But it also has to do with living a godly, virtuous, righteous life that is consistent with the fruit of the Spirit. So we're going to look at the first part of that this week, and God willing, next week we'll take the second part. So this week's the kind of the negative part of putting sin to death and making war on our sin, and next week will be the more positive part of pursuing righteousness. In fact, the Bible describes these two aspects in lots of different places, but one of the places that it shows up is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. You don't have to turn there. It'll be on the screen. I'm just going to reference it for a second. But you'll notice that that there's two parts. There's a negative part, something we're to flee, and there's also a positive part, something we're to pursue. Paul unpacks things like this also in Ephesians chapter 4 and Colossians chapter 3. But the idea is that we're to flee something, in this text, youthful passions, but we're also to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Note this, along with those who call on the name of the Lord out of a pure heart. So this fight that we're engaged in is a church-wide fight. It's a fight in which we're called to help each other. We can't do this by ourselves. We're called to help each other, to flee certain things, and to pursue certain things. And so this week we're going to look at the fleeing part, what we're to put to death, and next week we will look at the pursuit 
what we are to pursue. So this week we're going to talk about putting sin to death. Here is my outline ahead of time. I've got three questions I want us to answer. The first one is, what does it mean to put sin to death? What do I mean by that phrase? Number two, why should we do it? Why should we be concerned about it? And number three, how do we do it? So what, why, and how this morning? First, what does it mean to put sin to death? Well, I think, first of all, we have to ask what sin is. Right. If we want to know what we're supposed to put to death as Christians, we need to know what we're supposed to put to death. Paul here doesn't use the word sin in Romans 8:13. You'll notice he uses a couple of different words that are nonetheless referencing sin. But let's look at Romans 8:13 again. He says, for if you live according to the flesh, there's a key word, the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So flesh and deeds of the body. Now, just a note here. Flesh in the New Testament is not always used in a negative way. For instance, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but the but Christ who lives, me, lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. He's talking about his physical body there. But also the New Testament uses the flesh as a reference to the old part of us that is still corrupted and infected by sin as a result of being born in sin through our union with the first sinner, Adam, our great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, way back there. So, but Paul says here that what we're to put to death is the deeds of the body or the flesh. We're not to live according to the flesh. We're to put to death the deeds of the body. So this idea here of the flesh and the deeds of the body are related says, if you live according to the flesh, or so we must put to death the deeds of the body. So obviously, the deeds of the body that he's referring to is not just, you know, the fact that I can raise my hand. That's a deed of the body. I just put my hand up, right? That's a deed of the body. I, I'm walking. That's a deed of the body. Am I supposed to put all that to death? You put to death whatever your body does? No. The point is that you put to death whatever's in you that leads you into walking according to the flesh. That walking according to the the pattern of sin and disobedience and rebellion to God. So obviously the deeds of the body are the outworking of living according to the flesh. They are what Paul says in Colossians 3, 5 as evil desires that correspond to our fallen or earthly nature. So what are some examples of these? might be helpful to know what some sins we are called to put to death are. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21 describes some of them. In fact, they are... Paul even describes them as works of the flesh. Here they are. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, that's sex between unmarried people. Impurity, unnatural sexual practices and relationships. Sensuality, which is uncontrolled sexuality. Idolatry, exchanging the object of your worship or your allegiance or your affection. Sorcery, participating in unbiblical worship practices. Enmity, which is competitiveness and self-seeking. Strife, which is being argumentative and picking fights and refusing to live at peace. Jealousy, having a zeal and energy that comes from a hungry ego. Fits of anger, outbursts of rage. Rivalries, which are permanent parties and seeking to create warring factions. Dissensions, adversarial posture or hostility. Divisions, divisions between people. Envy, a desire for what others have. Drunkenness, orgies. Or we could look at what Paul contrasts them with, which is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. We have, What's the opposite of that? 
Well, the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit would be the works of the flesh. So what's the opposite of love? Well, it's abusing people. It's refusing to serve another for their good. It's being self-protecting and not willing to extend yourself for the good of another person. What's the opposite of joy? Despair, refusal to rejoice, mood swings that are based on your circumstances. What's peace? Anxiety or worry or indifference or apathy. These are all works of the flesh. Patience, what's the opposite of patience? Resentment toward others. Inability to take trouble without blowing it. Cynicism. What about kindness? Well, it's envy. It's unable to rejoice in others' good. It's rude. It's disinterested in others. What's goodness? What's the opposite of goodness? Being phony, hypocritical, being indifferent, or acting differently in different situations, lacking transparency or integrity. What about faithfulness? Being an opportunist, being a fair-weather friend. Failing to love with truth, disloyal, unreliable, not following through on your word, lacking integrity. What about gentleness? Well, being harsh, demanding, self-preoccupied. What about self-control, being impulsive or at the control of your desires or driving by the ur- being driven by the urgent over the important? All those are a resume of the flesh. And we see a lot of that in our lives, do we not? See a lot of that in my life. And that's flesh. That's old remaining sin that is in us that has to be fought and put to death. Now, before I get to actually what putting to death means, I think it's important for us to underscore what it doesn't mean. Okay, we are not seeking to put sin to death to get right with God. All right, and I'm going to come back to that a little bit later. This is not about making ourselves pure and striving to live a holy life and walking righteously to get God to like us. That's not what we're talking about here. The previous verses that Tom read for us leading up to Romans 8:13 make that crystal clear. Verse 1 begins in Romans chapter 8, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and we'll we'll unpack that more as we go along, but we're not doing this to get right with God. Secondly, we're not putting sin putting sin to death doesn't mean we're going to achieve perfection in this life. We will never eradicate sin from our lives completely in this life. Scripture characterizes the Christian life not as a, quote-unquote, victory lap around the racetrack of life. That's for heaven. But rather as a fight, a walk, a pursuit, a race. We are moving in the direction of what we will one day be. But we will not be that way until we are with the Lord. So we are moving in the direction of holiness, of Christ-likeness, but not without daily battles along the way. In Romans 7, the previous chapter to this passage, Paul showed us that Christians still wrestle with remaining sin. He used himself as an an example, as exhibit A of the reality of indwelling sin in the life of a believer. Paul says in chapter 7, verse 15, I hate what I do. In other words, there's a part of him that he still hates, and it's the part of him that he finds that is still inclined to sin. But at the same time, While Christians still wrestle with remaining sin, we have experienced a real disgust over sin and an inability now, at least, to find any lasting pleasure in it. That's why he says, I hate what I do. These two facts keep us from two opposite extremes. One would be legalism that says, well, Christians, real Christians don't struggle with sin. If you're a real Christian, you would live the victorious Christian life of sinless perfection. That's a legalistic spirit or the permissive licentious spirit that would say, well, real Christians are human. They sin just like everybody else, you know. No, I hate 
what I do. The Spirit of God has come in and transformed our inner self so that we want God and holiness, but our flesh or sinful nature is still powerful enough to keep us from doing what our new desires want. So it's not a path to get right with God. It's not a a means of achieving perfection in this life. And thirdly, it doesn't mean that we become ascetics. Now, let me explain what that means. Asceticism is a view that that views sin as coextensive or equal with creation itself. And so it prescribes poverty or the renunciation of money or celibacy, the renunciation of marriage and other forms of extreme self-denial as the means of spiritual growth. So if you really want to be spiritual, if you really want to be godly, get out of the earth, the world, separate yourself completely from all created life and things. First of all, that's impossible. Second of all, it's demonic. The idea is that the way to become more spiritual is to deny the physical. You know, Paul has a couple of things to say about that approach to holiness. First Timothy chapter four, verses one through five. Now, the spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, for it's made holy by the word of God in prayer. What's he attacking there? He's attacking people. You really want to be holy? Don't get married. You really deny that sexual, legitimate sexual outlet. Don't do that. Or... If you really want to be holy, you got to fast for extended periods of time and deny yourself certain kinds of food. That's a real path. See, it's all wrapped up in the physical. If we just deny ourselves physical things that God created for us to enjoy to his glory with thanksgiving from our hearts. If we deny legitimate created good that God has given to us, we're teaching a doctrine of demons. Did you get that? That's a demonic doctrine. It's not the way to grow spiritually. Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 to 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why is, if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom and promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Couldn't be clearer. We don't become more spiritual by becoming more ascetic. So then what does it mean? That's all right. So we kind of and I know that that's worthy of more explanation and talk. We I think that's worth. But I'm not going to get into what asceticism is. And I'm just leave it there. I'm just saying we don't deny we're we're not going to get growing spiritual by, by denying physical good that God created us to receive with thanksgiving. But. Having said that, what it doesn't mean, now let's talk about what it does mean. To put to death sin means to mortify sin. That is, to subdue it, to deprive it of its power, to break the habit and the pattern that we have developed of continually giving in to the temptation to a particular sin. So the goal is to weaken the habits of sin so that we begin walking in a new direction with a new measure of victory over that sin. So putting sin to death involves more than just actions. 
It involves getting down to the level of the motivations and the desires behind them. Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, Paul says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh along with its passions and desires. See, behind actual sinning is motivation and desire that's illegitimate and wrong and needs to be crucified. James talks about this in James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. He says that when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So there's this process. He almost takes, thinks of sin like a baby. He thinks of, so there's this desire that conceives and gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death, which is the very thing Paul's warning about here in Romans 8.13. So we've got to get down to the level of conception. We've got to get down to the level of desire. And desire is where sin is crucified, not at the level of behavior, because sin is deeper than deeds, brothers and sisters. It is deeper, way deeper than deeds. You cannot treat sin at the deed level. you got to treat sin at the desire level. Deeds are only the instrument of sin. Underneath them are the desires that have to be killed. So obviously something has to be done at the level of desire. And that's exactly where we have to put sin to death. As one pastor said, you can't just wipe away the web. You've got to crush the spider. You've got to crush the spider, which is the desire. Brian Hedges writes, we put sin to death whenever we consciously recognize sin for the enemy it is, habitually fighting its impulses. There's desire. And weakening its power in our lives. Notice what, notice that order there. It's very important. He says we put sin to death whenever we consciously recognize sin for the enemy it is, seeing it for what it is, habitually fighting its impulses and weakening its power in our lives a little bit at a time, day after day, every day for the rest of our lives. So that's what it means to put sin to death. Number two, why do we put sin to death? Notice what Paul says here in Romans 8.13 says, for if you live, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Now, is he talking about physical death here? The answer would be no, but the answer is how do we know that? Because why would he use that as an incentive to not to, to pursue life or to not die if everybody was going to die? In other words, why didn't he just say, you know, everybody dies? He doesn't say it. He says, those who live according to the flesh die, which means that there are some people who don't live according to the flesh, and he's calling Christians to not live according to the flesh. So obviously this death here that he's referring to is not physical death. It's spiritual death. It's hell. Now, that might raise some questions for you. How can Paul talk to Christians like that? Doesn't he know he's talking to once saved, always saved people? Doesn't he know he's talking to people who he just wrote and said, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, Christ did, God did in, in sending his son Christ in, to, to live in this, in this body and to offer up himself, you know, and then he, then he talks about setting, you know, we must set our minds on the things of the spirit. Those who are indwelt by the spirit are not in the flesh and all. And then he says, if you live according to the flesh you will die how can he say that he's just written 12 verses of encouragement to them 
about the gospel. And he's going to conclude this chapter with even more encouragement about the gospel. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be adopted as his sons. And if God is for us, who can be against us? And he didn't spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also along with him freely give us all things? Who is to condemn? It's Christ Jesus who died. More than that was raised to life. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? It says nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. So what is this? What is this? What's going on here? If you live according to the flesh, you will die. Well, here's why we put sin to death. Not to inherit salvation as a means of salvation, as a means of getting right with God, but by proving that we are right with God. We prove that we are saved by our warfare on our sin. That's why Paul can say, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. So does the threat of death in this of this up to these Christians imply that they can lose their salvation? No, but they can show they never had it. Someone who is justified by faith alone, apart from works of the law, which Paul says in Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or in Romans 8, 30, that those who are justified will be glorified. No one who is truly justified can ever die in the sense of eternal death. So, of course, my answer is no. So then why does Paul tell us and the Christians at Rome here that if they live according to the flesh, they will die? Because putting to death the deeds of the body by the spirit, in other words, the daily practice of seeking to kill sin at the level of desire in our lives is the result and evidence of being justified. If you're making war on sin and walking by the spirit, then you know that you are united to Jesus Christ. But if you are living according to the flesh, that is, if you're not making war on sin in autopilot, you know, just coasting through life, allowing sin to kill you, then there is no compelling reason or evidence to believe that you were ever united to Jesus Christ and that you were ever justified. So in other words, putting sin to death in our lives is not the way we get justified, but it is one of the ways that we show that we are justified. True Christians are resolved to deal with all known sin in their lives. Period. True Christians are resolved to deal with all known sin in their lives. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1. Since we have these promises. You say, I got promises. I got promises that God's going to save me. That he's made me a new creation in Christ. That I belong to him. That I've been forgiven of all my sins. He says, since we have these promises. What does that cause a Christian to do? Look. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. The gospel promises of forgiveness and no condemnation and freedom and love lead us to warfare. Warfare in our lives. There is a mean streak in Christianity. It's not toward others. But it's toward the impulses in ourselves which would lead us to hurt others. The mean streak is against the sin that remains in us. The desires that are contrary to God's will. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9 that I beat my body and I bring it into subjection. Lest I be disqualified. And he's not talking there about being disqualified from the pastorate. He's talking about not getting to heaven. So he beats his body and brings it into subjection. That's boxing language. 
I mean, that is the language. I mean, he's using Olympic language in that, in that passage. We have to fight our sin like an Olympic athlete trains. Like those teams that are on the floor in March Madness get ready for those games. That's to be the level of intensity that we're to occupy in our pursuit of Christ-likeness and fighting our own sin. They better not show us up. In terms of their desire to win a trophy at a basketball game, we've got an eternal wreath, 1 Corinthians 9, that we're working for that far exceeds what they're going to get at the end. So we've got to fight and got to work toward that. One of the banes of present-day Christianity is the way that we can sit every week under the teaching of God's Word and even have private devotions and perhaps even participate in a Bible study group without any serious intent to obey the truth that we learn. The indictment of the Jewish people God made to Ezekiel would be well said of some of us today. Ezekiel 33, 31, and 32. And they come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths, they act. Their heart is set on their gain. And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. Remember when Jesus used that parable? From Ezekiel when he was talking about the people who they just love to come to watch the sing and dance show. They love to show up and watch Jesus do his thing. Preach and heal and cast out demons. And man, that was some entertainment. But no, it wasn't going to change anything. And so he said, you're like these people. Our tendency can often be to equate knowledge of the truth and even agreement with it, with obedience to it. James said that when we do this, we would deceive ourselves. I was reading in Deuteronomy this week in my Bible reading, Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses 18 to 20, and the Lord rebuked me at this word that Moses, Moses is giving kind of his parting speech to the people of Israel before they go into the promised land, and he's not going to get a go in, but he's telling them and calling them to obedience to God as they get ready to go in, and here's what he says. He says, Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. In other words, I'm going to heaven though I don't fight sin. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man. And the curses written in this book will settle upon him and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. Serious stuff. Serious stuff. True Christians are not content. Why do I say all this? Because I I want to stir us up to the reality that we have to fight sin for the sake of eternal life. We have to fight sin for the sake of showing ourselves to be what we confess ourselves to be. We profess one thing. We practice another thing. We've got to make our profession and our practice seek to line up. True Christians aren't content with their present level of sanctification or growth. They, are, they aren't content to live at peace with the occasional bouts of indulgence in sin, knowing that there's forgiveness in the atoning blood of Christ. We don't talk like that. We say, yes, praise God, there is forgiveness with God. There is 100 complete, 100 proof complete forgiveness blotting out of all of my sins, past, present, and future. And Christians rejoice in that, and they claim those promises, and then they make war on their sin. That's my point. So, 
We've talked about the first two. Now let's talk about the last one. We've looked at what it means to put sin to death and why we do it. Now let's talk about how we put it to death. Notice how Paul tells us to do it here in verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. I skipped something important there on purpose. Let me just read it again. Skipping the important part. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. I didn't skip it that time. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. See, this is not about behavior modification here. This is not about trying harder, doing more, us working on our own. Okay, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to do this. You can't do that. You cannot defeat sin by yourself. You cannot kill desire for sin by yourself. And I can't either. The only way that's going to happen is by the Spirit. By the Spirit. And that's good news. That's good news for us because we have a helper in our fight with sin. And his name is the Holy Spirit. We have God helping us to fight our sin. We have God helping us to fight our tendencies against God. Isn't that amazing? How loving of God to give us himself to fight our tendencies that cause us to depart from him. Sounds like new covenant, right? I mean, that's what God does when he saves a Christian is he puts the Holy Spirit in our lives and seals us with him. And so he tells us that that Holy Spirit was given to you not just to guarantee your future inheritance, but to make sure you fight sin in this life so that you will inherit it, so that you will make it. So Paul tells us that to put sin to death by the Spirit. So the question then becomes is what does that mean? What does that mean? How does it, how does it work itself out? So while we can't do it on our own, we can do it with the help of the Holy Spirit. So let me try to walk us through what I think Paul means here when he says, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body. So let's go back to verse 5 near the beginning of the chapter, Romans 8, verse 5, where Paul writes, For those who live according to the flesh... Same language here, as he said in verse 13. For those who live according to the flesh, set their mind on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, set their minds on the things of the spirit. So there's the first step, right? We've got, so if we're going to live according to the spirit, not according to the flesh, we've got to set our minds on something. Which is taking our minds and setting them on the things of the spirit. Now the question becomes, what does that mean? What are the things of the Spirit? Well, there's only one other place in the New Testament where that phrase is used, things of the Spirit. And it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, where Paul says that it was not in words taught by human wisdom, but those taught by the Spirit that he instructed the Corinthians. So he equates the things of the Spirit with words. With words of God. So as we look at, if you look at that passage, you will see that the things of the spirit specifically refers to the words that were taught by the spirit. In other words, the things of the spirit are the words of God from the apostles. So we see this over and over in the New Testament. The New Testament does not drive a hard wedge between word and spirit. Word and spirit are kept together. So where the spirit is working is in the words the spirit inspired. So we, the things of the spirit are the words of God. 
So when Paul says in Romans 8, 5, that those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit, I infer that he means that they set their minds on the Word of God and the realities that those words are intended to communicate. So this is especially significant because you remember in our in Ephesians chapter 6 where Paul lays out the battle armor for us as Christians? What we're to have, the you know, the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and the shield of faith. What's the one offensive weapon? The sword. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Paul says in Ephesians 16. So the offensive weapon that we are called to use is the sword. And the sword is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Notice Spirit and Word kept there close together. So that even is more encouraging to me that what Paul has in mind when he says, put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit, he means fix your mind on the Word of God and use it to kill sin. Apart from the Word of God, there is no hope for killing sin because apart from the Word of God, there is no Spirit of God in terms of his activity and the way he works. He works in and through and by the Word of God. So very practically, what do we do to bring the power of the Spirit by the Word into action to kill sin? Galatians 3.5 gives us a pointer here. Galatians chapter 3, verse 5, and I'm, I'm going to turn there if you want to turn there with me. It's, a very, it's such a huge text in terms of Paul's laying out practical growth and what it looks like to grow in godliness. He says in verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you, see, that's what we, that's what we want. We want the Spirit supplied to us. Does, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Abraham got righteousness by hearing God's promise and believing it. That's how the Spirit was released into his life. And you know what? That's how the Spirit gets released in our lives too. We hear a promise from the word of God. We believe it. And that's what kills sin at the desire level. That's, that's how the Holy Spirit works and is released into our lives. By hearing with faith. Hearing it, reading it, believing it. We also see this summarized in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13. Paul says, but we ought always to give thanks to you for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification, that is through growing in godliness, by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Look at that. Look at that series of words. 2 Thessalonians 2.13. First, it chose you to be saved, saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So believing the truth, we access the Spirit, helping us be sanctified. Ultimately, we get to heaven. We're saved in the completest sense. So I think that's a great summary text for what I'm getting at here. So when I, what I'm saying is that when temptation comes against us, when our flesh is calling us to live according to it, alongside a very powerful and resolute no from ourselves, You look to the word of God, especially a promise that he will be more for you than what sin offers for you in that moment. And you receive and believe that promise and it severs the root of sin at the level of desire. It begins to work on your desires. So that's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, which we already referenced, since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves. 
because the promises are the means by which we cleanse ourselves. First Peter also says a similar, similar thing. Having these very great and precious promises, they enable us to become partakers of the divine nature. It's the promises of God infused and empowered by the Holy Spirit that enables us to grow in godliness. So I got a little acronym that I use in my own brain. This is not in the Bible. You don't have to take it. I'm not imposing it on you as a, I'm just giving you an example. And I'm running a risk of using this because I grew up in Louisville as a Louisville Cardinals fan right here in cat country in the middle of March Madness, but it's the acronym is CARDS. So if you don't want to associate it with a Louisville Cardinal, you don't have to. Associate it with a deck of cards. All right? So here's cards. This is what, this is practically the way sin, when temptation comes and fighting sin and seeking to do it by the Spirit. So C, confess. And by confess, I mean we say to God, so say, I'm just going to put it, put, use this acronym in a very, a very specific moment. Say you're fighting jealousy. You got, You know, something's come up in your life and you're envious of another person and you're not wanting to rejoice with them and you're not wanting to be happy with them and you're not wanting to be thankful for them. You're wanting to be bitter towards them. You're wanting to be self-pity towards yourself. That's the flesh. you got to kill it. So jealousy's there. What are you going to do? You have a desire to be jealous. What are you going to do about it? You're going to confess to God, first of all. God, I'm a jealous person. I'm a jealous person. You name it. You confess your sin. Then, A, you ask. Ask God to help you. God, help me not to be jealous. I have no reason to be jealous. Rely. This is where you've got to activate the word of God in your life. So what's gonna, what, what word from God is going to help you not be jealous? You find one and you access it. And I'll give some other examples here in a minute of some other sins. Then D, do, do it. Don't be jealous. Believe God's promise. And then thank God. So that's the S, say thanks. So confess, ask, rely, do, say thanks. Cards. All right, so example. Let me give you an example of anxiety. Fighting that all the time, aren't we? I am. Good grief. Worry, fear, anxiety. What's going to happen? So I'm starting to feel anxious. I'm starting to worry about tomorrow. I'm starting to disobey Jesus. I know it. I know Jesus, you said, sufficient for the day. It's own trouble. You know, enough. don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow I'll worry about itself. I'm sorry. I'm worried. I'm worried. I'm anxious. So you say, confess. All right, Jesus, I'm sorry. I, I don't want to be anxious. Help me. There's confess and ask. But then 1 Peter 5, 7 means a lot to me. Cast all your anxieties on him for he cares for you. Oh, I don't have to be anxious. Jesus cares for me. He cares for me. I'm not just a nebulous, vague, empty, you know, person in the seat in the big community of saints down through the ages. He cares for me. So if he cares for me, I don't have to be worried because guess what? He's got the whole world in his hands. So we believe that and then we're abled. To, to, to live through life with less anxiety. We're starting to kill that. It's not that, ooh, it's not like a magic, you know, like a pill. You take the promise. It's like, take two promises and call me in the morning. You know, like two promises and then just the desires are gone. Wow, I'm just holy. That's amazing. Look at that trick Pastor Mark taught us. It's like magic. No, I'm not talking about, it's not magic, okay? This is over a protracted years, decades, multiple decades of doing this. Day after day after day. 
It's not just magic pills that we're talking about here. This is not voodoo. You know, this is learning to walk by the spirit in accord with the word of God. So maybe it's unforgiveness, like I talked about, bitterness or jealousy. Then you say, okay, so I confess it. All right, God, I'm tempted to be bitter here. I'm tempted to be unforgiving. I don't want to forgive this person. They've wronged me. It hurts. I don't want to do it. Then you read Ephesians 4.32, be tenderhearted, forgiving others as God in Christ has forgiven you. And then you start to reflect on how much has God forgiven me? A ton. God has forgiven the inexcusable in me, and I am called to forgive the inexcusable in others. If God has forgiven, your sin has no excuse, and neither does mine, and God forgave it. Just wiped it away through the blood of Christ. And so you will never be called to forgive another person more than God has been called to forgive you in Christ. Never. We will never out-forgive others the way God has forgiven us. When we get to heaven, we'll say, "Just Lord, I'm just interested in this. <laughs> I might ask questions like this. So, Lord, how many sins did you forgive in me? Oh, 77 trillion in one year? <laughs> or something like that. And then, and, then, and, then, and then say, Lord, I don't remember. How many sins was I called to forgive from others? 17? Dang, that's nowhere near close. You know, or something like that. But that's that helps us begin to make war on our sin. So let me wrap up here. So ultimately, we put ourselves in the best position to put sin to death by rehearsing and remembering the gospel. That's why there are 12 verses before verse 13 in Romans 8. And notice when he says in Romans 8 that we are debtors, verse 12, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. So who are you a debtor to? You're a debtor to God. I'm a debtor to God. I'm not a debtor to the flesh. I don't know the flesh anything except war. But I owe God my life because he bought it with the price of his own son's blood. So focusing on what Jesus has done for us begins to wither sin's power in our lives by focusing on Christ's redemption in a way that softens our heart with love and gratitude to him which brings us to hate the sin for itself, and so it begins to lose its power and attraction over us. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, if you're someone who's outside of Christ right now, please listen to me. You are right now in the flesh. That's your status. That's your identity. You don't have the Holy Spirit. You're in the flesh. And as a result, living in the flesh, you will die. You will go to hell forever. But here's the good news of the gospel is that if you are willing to turn from your sin and embrace Jesus by faith, you will receive the Holy Spirit of God. You will receive a pronouncement over your life of there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you will be set upon a new course of life, which will lead you fighting, struggling, stumbling all the way, but will land you safely in glory. Join us. Join this ragtag bunch of sinners that are holding to Jesus Christ alone and hoping in the Holy Spirit to make some progress towards likeness to the Savior that we've come to love and trust. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together in your word. Pray that it would do its 
necessary work in all of our hearts. All of us are in different places here this morning in relationship to our warfare with sin. Some of us are making no warfare whatsoever, and some of us are fighting so hard. We feel so discouraged. We feel so overwhelmed. God, may you not give any additional burden to any of your people this morning than what you would cause to bring out through your word. May the, the, the godly sister or godly brother here who is just so sensitive in their conscience and so aware of their own sin and their fight against it and their warfare, may they be encouraged and not defeated by this word. May those of us who have a tendency to coast or be indifferent toward remaining sin in our lives, may we be resolved anew to make war on it, not to earn your forgiveness, but to know that because we've been ransomed and redeemed and adopted and forgiven, that we are not what we once were, and we and that sin is doing nothing but speaking lies to us about who we really are. We are yours. We are your adopted children. We are those who have been saved, ransomed, and rescued by Jesus Christ, and we do not want to grieve your spirit. So forgive us, God. Forgive us for our many, many sins, and help us by your spirit to put to death the deeds of the body. And we ask all this through Christ. Amen.